Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Nagin Farsad began her comedy career while still advising the city of New York on its campaign finance policies. And over the course of the 2010s, she has mixed social justice and comedy both on stage and on the road. She made and performed a road trip documentary across America in 2012 called The Muslims Are Coming. She has delivered multiple TED Talks, one based on that documentary and another on her book, How to Make White People Laugh. Since 2016, she's hosted a weekly podcast on the Earwolf Network called Fake the Nation. She's become a regular on the NPR comedy quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She also has appeared on HBO's High Maintenance and written for Jenna Friedman's adult swim specials, Soft Focus. Farsad sat down with me to focus in on her own career and how she remains optimistic about comedy's ability to positively influence public perceptions and policies, even on the eve of the 2020 election. So let's get to it! So, Nagin Farsad, uh, last things first, uh, thank you for being on the show. And um, so my first last question is, Yes. how many college degrees should a comedian have? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, li- I, like a com- I like a comedian that's got a PhD. Um, I like a comedian who will get a PhD and then be a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> I'm none of those things. I'm none of those things. But I do have more degrees than is 100% necessary to be a comedian. Um, I uh, I always, one of my like little stupid, stupid go-to jokes when people ask me, you know, about myself or whatever is, um, oh, you know, I have a, a master's degree in African-American studies and another one in public policy from Columbia. And uh, because you need both of those to be a comedian. And that's, uh, and, and that always gets one of those <laughs> chuckles. Um, but yeah, I am over uh, overly qualified um, for this. Uh, I'm actually underqualified to be a comedian, but I am qualified to go into politics like that's and, and city, city management, state management, you know. Um, and in fact, I was a policy analyst for the city. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's what I was doing as a full time person before, bef- you know, before I went full time on this. Well, it's interesting, you know, as we're coming up on the 2020 elections, we're in a moment in society where being educated or being an intellectual is frowned upon. But also in comedy, getting ready to talk to you reminded me of how like some of our most celebrated stand-up comedians barely finished high school. So it's kind of like looked upon as, oh, well, Pryor didn't go to college. Carlin didn't go to college. Moms Mabley didn't go to college. Right, right, so right. So it's like, and some, and some of today's like most popular comedians didn't go to college and are like so proud of that. They'll say like, I'm yeah. stupid, but here's what I think about everything. Right. I'm <laughs> jealous of those people because a lot of them started doing stand-up when they were like 17 or 18, you know? I was um, deep in multiple degrees and, um, you know, and, and like truly being an academic nerd, 
uh, and and I didn't commit myself full time to comedy for a very long time uh, as a result. Uh, and I think to have that clarity when you're like 17 or 18, I'm very jealous. It just means you're leapfrogging over everyone else. You know, you've got these like five or six years minimum um, o- over other people uh, if, if you didn't go to college. I mean, assuming, you know, assuming you're someone like, um, you know, I'm trying to, I, I, the for only example that keeps coming to mind is Louis C.K. But anyways, uh, with all of his stuff noted, um, but people like that who kind of have, uh, who, who's, who just had, I think, a, a leg up on his peers because he mm-hmm. started so early. Um, that said, I don't, like I, I don't, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't redo, I wouldn't change anything um, about what I did. You know, like I, um, I feel like it may the those things. I mean, I always wanted to go into public service, and I am not specifically in public service right now. Um, but I'm in a weird, weird, you know, strange fourth cousin to public service uh, when I do um, kind of, you know, um, comedy that's either like an act, activist comedy, like a social justice comedy, like comedy that um, scratches a little bit of that um, public service itch. Uh, it, it sort of makes me feel better. Um, and, uh, you know, I, and I think it's given me uh, stuff to talk about uh, doing those degrees. It's given me stuff to talk about. Uh, when, was the, when was the first moment when you realized, even though you're having a, an upward trajectory in public policy work and, and being in ci- civil service, that that wasn't your path? When was the first moment where you're like, you know what, this isn't really where I should be. I should be on stage making fun of this or (laughs) making fun of it, whatever I want to make fun of, instead of listening to Congressman Charlie Rangel. (laughs) Who I interned for. I interned for Rangel. Um, Yeah, I... um, I I should um... report him for ethics violations instead of... (laughs) 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 <laughs> or make fun of it instead of like trying to be part of the right well i mean I, so the entire time so when i was an undergrad i was a government major but i was also a theater major so i was doing sort of both things from the beginning even in high school i was a the president of the debate team but also vice president of the theater company okay so i was like a very special crossover dork and <laughs> um and then and that just sort of continued in college i was re- i mean i think even though i was that double major or whatever that i think one of the most important things i did in college was i was in this i was in a sketch comedy group which at the time was named the skits ophrenics hey and um they've since changed their name to just the skits because of you know reasons of not wanting to insult the mental health community but um but at the time but when i was in college nobody cared about sensitivity um or brown people so anyway (laughs) so um <laughs> so uh it was um I was always doing both things. And when I was in grad school, you know, I'm I was in grad school, literally the entire Japanese government would send their um 
you know, career civil servants to Colombia to learn the skills of international diplomacy and then bring them back and then throw them into government. Uh, those are the kinds of people I was going to school with. These were very serious people. Um, and they would set up study groups and we would be doing labs. We would, do, we would be doing actual field work um, with real organizations. Right. And I would be like, um, okay guys, I've got to go do a set downtown. So I gotta go, you know? Uh, and I always, I, I kind of always had one foot out the door when I was working um, for the city of New York in the in campaign finance. You know, I really believed in the work. I really believed in the people there. I mean, I have the greatest things to say about um, public servants, uh, but I was always performing at night. So it's like by day I would go to a, a city council meeting that we're, where we were presenting numbers on campaign finance. And then by night I would be like making fun of city council, you know, so it became deeply inappropriate um, at a certain point. And, um, and also I, my friends staged an intervention where they're like, snap out of it. You want to be a comedian. Um, and it just, I would, it felt so narcissistic to me, you know, I didn't want to do something that was so, navel gazy and um and i but i had to admit that that's what would have made that that was going to make me happier okay um you know i i i've talked with uh i've had me soon zaid on the podcast before yeah, sure. me soon. and uh she was a part of your um big uh cross-country hootenanny the muslim yeah yeah the muslims are coming <laughs> and uh looking back on that how do you, how do you, how do you feel about that project in, in retrospect? Um, yeah, I, it's interesting because I think in some ways we thought things were bad and things were bad because this was a time where, where Islamophobia was really being used as a political wedge tool. So, um, it started with the birther movement. It started, it started with Donnie, right? It started right. with Donnie questioning Barack. And then of course, so that's, that was like that sort of time. We thought it was bad, you know, after nine 11, I mean, I wasn't a comedian at that time. Um, I was too young, but like the things started to get, um, you know, there was that that brush, that that flush of excitement for Islamophobia <laughs> after 9-11, where everyone's like, let's get on board with that. Um, and then, you know, and then it's sort of every time you sort of thought things were going to die down, there would be some other weird thing that happened, whether it was a war with Iraq or um, whether it was a terrorist attack that, uh, you know, that, um, that American Muslims had to somehow explain for. Um, and then, and then in 2012, so we, so the movie came out in 2014. And and in, in, in 2000, you know, the birther movement was well underway. Um, and then there was like all the, the ground zero mosque controversy of like, should they build a, an Islamic center near ground zero, which was ridiculous. Um, and, you know, and there are mosque controversies all over the country. You know, there was arson and there was um, hate, uh, um, you know, cr hate crimes. And it was, um, it was, it was, a, we thought that that was bad. And I don't think at that time we could have anticipated something like the Muslim ban, you know? Right. Um, so in some ways the Muslims are coming was just ahead of its time. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and just so listeners know, we basically rounded up a bunch of Muslim American comedians, but in a nonviolent way. And we took them around the country to places like um, Mississippi and um, Utah and Arizona and Georgia and Alabama, just places where they love the muzzies 
and we did shows and we called the tour the Muslims are coming um, and in, and at that time people were scared I remember theaters some theaters would, were, would get nervous and they would hire extra security you know we got a lot of hate mail the theater would get hate mail on our behalf um, so and that was again this is like when we were filming before 2014. So um, it's it's interesting to think that in some ways things have gotten worse and some things, in some ways things have gotten just way more chaotic because now there seem, there, it's like there was a time where you could sort of say um, Muslims are under attack, Black people are under attack, Latinx people are under attack or whatever. Like it felt a little bit more... <laughs> simpler versions of hate Mm -hmm. um and now it feels like there's so many more nodes of hate um there's so many more issues that they've been able to galvanize bigotry on um and uh you know like i think the obviously the transgender community has never had it good but i think you know the bathroom debate all that stuff like we've been uh, the, the, the the extreme right has been able to sort of use a lot more nodes of hate to be able to um, create their movement. And so in some ways it's just gotten more hectic and, um, you know, hard to (laughs) wade through. But the, the underpinning of that project in the film and also the Ted talk you gave and a book you wrote, the underpinning of all of that is the, the central premise is that if you can make white people laugh, about people who aren't white, then there'll yeah. be some sort of understanding and and lessening of the ignorance that leads to the hate, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, my, the title of my book is How to Make White People Laugh. And I make the argument and basically in the introduction that it, to explain the title, that if you can make white people laugh because they control so much of the world, <laughs> um, you can get them on your side. And um, which is obviously, you know, sort of ridiculous and satirical. But um, but I do think I am one of these people that really strongly believe in the power of culture and, and the, and the way that culture can move things. And I see, you know, I see, like I saw it in my own parents, right? Like my parents, when I started dating a black man, they were like, eh, why do you, we obviously do not hate black people, but why are you dating black people that we obviously do not hate? You know what I mean? It's like, they were like, a touch racist of course then they meet him and they love him and and now he's like the son they never had except for they do have a son um but they're they're they i've seen them evolve right so now my parents are like really into black lives matter they're really you know they're so much more they were they were over the moon when Biden named Kamala Harris as his VP, right? So these are changes that you can see in actual people. You can see it because of, not because of, you know, some policy change, although I, I obviously heavily believe in that as well, but you can see it because they met my husband, right? Uh, He had an effect on them. And I think the same is true. Like we were able to, Will and Grace came into our living rooms um, and and made some people, and even if they aren't suddenly big fans of the gay community, the gay community was normalized for people. Normalization, I think, is half the battle. And that's something that I feel like I like to tackle with all of my work is just here, here's a bunch of people you haven't seen very much. We're just going to make it more comfortable for you to see it. Once you see them once, 
It'll be less and less weird. It'll be much harder to activate those like stronger hate feelings. Um, so normalization, I think, is is the is the first step um, in in all these changes. There are sociological studies that find that they'll find they find that like you can um, you might not be able to change people's minds, right? Like for example, about gay marriage. There are plenty of people who still think gay people shouldn't be married, but they're not out on the street pissed about it because they're like, well, just now gay people just do get married. It just, that happens. We, it has become normalized. Right. Um, so normalization is like a critical step, I think, to change. And I, um, and I think culture plays a huge part in that. So that, that's, you know, been, that was one of the, the aims with the book, the movie that, you know, a lot of the stuff I do. So is it really as simple as seeing the change in your own parents that keeps your faith and optimism going um, that you can I mean, that you can change other people's minds because you've seen it happen uh, in your own family oh my god sean i feel like i'm a i'm a just a dorky ridiculous embarrassing dorky patriot uh i you know i went to my parents naturalization ceremony when i was like five and they handed me a flag and I was sitting in my, and my brother as well. My brother was born in Iran. And, um, and I didn't, I, I didn't understand the pro like what was, I didn't understand America, the process I was five, but I knew it's like, I remember, I remember the moment. I remember waving the flag. I remember being so excited that my parents were going to become citizens, not even knowing really what that meant. Um, and so from then I sort of have had just from a very early age, a heavy buy-in into the idea of, uh, of America and what it's capable of being. Right. And so I think, um, that's what's motivated me for, for a very long time. Like that's what made me want to go into public service. Um, that's what makes me think that elections are like fun celebrations and not a chore. They're like Christmas, you know? Um, and so I think I've, I've just been a dorky American that way for a really long time. Well, what has, what has do like your podcast, Fake the Nation, which you started four years ago during the last election cycle, what, ha what has that experience taught you or reinforced within you in terms of being a, how, how you're able to use humor as an effective tool? Um, I, um, um, sorry, my, my baby just <laughs> is making noises. Okay. What has your baby taught you about it? <laughs> let, me, let me, let me change the question. What has your baby taught you? <laughs> um, so, so since, you know, so fake the nation it's me and a rotating cast of comedians and we convince about the news. And when we started the podcast, I just thought like, Oh, we're going to talk about the horse race right now. And it's going to be all horse race, horse race, horse race. Um, but then after the elections, things will come down and it'll be more of a mix of politics and culture and whatever. It'll be a fun conversation with comedians every week. Um, and I remember thinking during the, the primary season and then during the general election season, like, what a fucking slog this is. My God, to talk about Donald Trump all the time. Ah, I can't wait to stop doing that. And then, of course, we couldn't stop doing that. Um, it be, it was um, it's like something I, I it wasn't it wasn't like what I signed up for. <laughs> but then but then I think the function, I think, for a lot of comedians, and I, you know, we there's like such a glut of 
political comedy out there. And I felt, I felt like my particular function um, was to be optimistic about things, um, was to look at this misery, um, but also like not to overweight it because there's so many things that American in American political institutions that work, that work properly. We don't hear the good news about stuff that works properly. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't hear, we don't hear the good news of local victories, statewide victories. Right. We don't, you know, um, we, we rare (laughs) roads that are paved do not get news. Um, but those are victories. Right. And so I feel like my job in these last four years has been to have some perspective, um, to not put so much importance on the, just this one office of the white house to get people a little bit more excited about their local, um, politics about get me getting involved in, in what's happening in their, in their areas locally. Because at the end of the day, you really have to ask yourself, I mean, the pandemic has been a great example of how the federal government can fuck up a bunch of lives. But before the pandemic, you have to, you, you really have to ask yourself this, this guy is in the white house and he's heinous. Um, how does it affect my day to day life? You know? And, um, and so that I think the balance for me was let's fight what needs to be fought all the time. Always keep democracy on your to-do list. Right. Um, but let's also be ha- put it in perspective and let's have some faith in our institutions and let's have faith in our local and state institutions and get more excited about those as well, because they've gotten short shrift for a very long time. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I feel like the podcast, what I started, where my mind started going in these last four years. So uh, we were talking about how, how to get people motivated to vote because you know, we're talking oh, and it's, and it's <laughs> coming up on the election and you're involved in two separate projects, right? Yeah. I've, I've been sort of um, writing stuff, um, you know, uh, to try and get Democrats across the board elected. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've been kind of working on this election since June um, and I think it's like, a, you know, yeah, I mentioned like, how does this guy affect your life on a day-to-day basis is not to say that he doesn't affect your life, right? Because we've seen right from this pandemic uh, that we've lost upwards of 220,000 people. So we can see how a federal response can really, like I said before, fuck up everybody's life. Um, and that has happened and we're seeing that. So it's obviously important who sits at the top. Um, but at the same time, I think what I also want people to realize is that it's also important to see who sits at the middle and, and near the bottom, like in your local, you know, if you, my just where I'm sitting right now, I've got a district leader, I've got a city councilwoman, I've got a state assembly person, I have a state senator, um, I have community board reps, uh, and then I have um, the public advocate, I have you know a governor, I have a, a mayor. These are the many, many layers of people that are here for who? For me, for me. And I think the average person doesn't even know the very many people that are there to serve them and to make their lives better. Uh, And that, I think, is what we need to be motivated to come out for those, you know, for representation at that level. And so it's, it's, you know, so I'm making both arguments. Care, but don't care only about who's in the White House. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I know 
you've also talked a bit in your in your life and on podcasts about the difference between being an activist whose whose cause is social justice and the term that gets thrown a lot about social justice warriors and mm -hmm. what it means to be virtue signaling and keyboard warriors. Yeah, you know, I was just on a podcast recently and they thought I was going to be really like uptight <laughs> because I because I do um, work in the social justice space. But I also just to be clear, like my last film, um, Third Street Blackout, which is now available uh, on streaming uh, on Peacock. Um, it's a romantic comedy, right? With like Janine Garofalo and John Hodgman and Ed Weeks and me. And um, and it's a, it's a romantic comedy set in the blackout after Hurricane Sandy and it has nothing to do with politics. And so I am, you know, my very first feature film was called Nerdcore Rising and it was about nerds who rap. So I, I, I also think right now there's a, there's a thing right with being a Muslim and having made like the Muslims are coming that somehow eclipses everything else that I do. Like I do what I'm, what I'm trying to say to you, Sean, is I do garbage comedy as well as comedy <laughs> that has to do with social justice. Like one of my very first jobs was at MTV writing like jokes about Justin Bieber's abs. Right. It was, I I've done, I've done all of that. Um, but I think um, the term social justice has become so grody for people. And I don't, and it's sad because it's, fundamentally like a word that we should all be on the side of but this social justice warrior thing has gotten out of control or like our or like our perception that social of who social justice warriors are sometimes there's a lot of um what is that expression um you know that there's a lot of rage over and you, no one actually knows what the object is. And, uh, and I think that's a little bit of what's happened here. Uh, you know, I, you know, I can forgive someone like Kevin Hart who wrote a, um, a homophobic tweet, you know, seven years ago or whatever it was. Like, I understand that people change and grow and that's what happens, you know? Um, that's what happens to people. <laughs> and right. so I'm not trying to hold people's feet to the fire that I don't give a shit about that stuff. I think that stuff is really a terrible use of the internet. Um, but I do care right now about um, immigrant rights. I care, you know, I care that there are still hundreds of children that haven't been reunited with their families because of family separation policies in 2018. Um, I care about those things. And uh, those things matter whether or not Kevin Hart made a homophobic tweet. It matters. It, he should apologize for that. He should, he should recognize that he's grown involved and changed. Um, but it is not like, how I'm spending my time. Yeah, I feel like you can attribute a lot of it to social media. You know, you're, you're referencing yeah. tweets of Kevin Hart. And the, the reason I think people, part of the backlash to social justice is, is the idea that on social media, it's, it's so easy to just get on the keyboard and type words, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. <laughs> or get out and vote. And but that doesn't really move the needle on anything. No, it feels... It doesn't like even move yourself. 
right? Does it, I mean, it, we've both written, written tweets like that, right? I, I mean, I, I don't mean to besmirch your reputation of tweet writing, mm. but uh, <laughs> most people I know have written a tweet that's like, go out and vote, fill out your census form. And I, just the other day, because of um, the time was up to, to fill out your census forms. I wrote something on Twitter, like, you know, it's the last day to fill out your census. This tweet is useless. But if you go talk to a neighbor about filling out their census, then, then that's not useless, you know? Um, and, and I, I've become so disenchanted with social media as a way to get out any kind of information, you know, it feels empty and nothing. It just feels like it's going into some rage hole. Uh, and, and it doesn't feel funny. I used to have, um, I used to have this like spark of joy of like, Oh, I'm going to post this joke, you know? And, uh, I don't, I've sort of lost that. There's everything about social media has kind of made me, um, is kind of made me feel gross. Yeah. Uh, You know, you mentioned an early job working for MTV and it reminded me of, you know, MTV used to be the place during election season where the comedians or the celebrities would get out there and say, vote or die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now it's, it's it's amazing watching all of these comedians on Twitter or YouTube or Instagram, and they're making these videos and they're making these highly political statements and sometimes sometimes alienating their own fan bases. Sure. For doing so. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Like what, how do you, how do you feel seeing all this happen? Is, is, does that help your rage or not? I, I it's weird. I don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's, it's like, yeah, that's great. There's some sort of reunion show of some, you know, famous sitcom for Biden, you know, right. <laughs> fantastic, I guess, you know, like, um, and it, that was yeah. happy days, by the way, it was happy days. <laughs> no, wait, no, it was the West Wing. No, wait, it was. You're right, right, right. Cause there's just so many. <laughs> it was curved. No, it was. I don't know. Happy all of them. There's all of them. Um, all of them. They've I, all reunited. They've all re- and that's great. And, and, and there's this, like, you know, the pandemic has left a lot of the media people with time to do stuff like that. And it's such a weird combination of, of things that are happening, a pandemic and an election at the same time. But um, I think it sort of leaves me feeling nothing. Like, are... I don't know. You you wonder, is there anyone that moves votes anymore? Like Beyonce and Oprah, uh, Springsteen. Springsteen. Yeah. I don't know. There's, there's, there's some people that still, I think move people, I guess. Um, but I don't know if a reunion episode of the West wing moves people. I don't know. I want to believe that it does again because of my, my because of my, because I believe in the power of culture. Uh, I think right now it's, I, I think right now what we're seeing is not even that there is no power in culture is that it's so diffuse that there's just so many, you know, I just, I just mentioned <laughs> my last film, Thursday Blackout is on Peacock. 
there's so many of these platforms, right? It's not just that there's Peacock, but there's Peacock and HBO Max and Hulu and this and that. And there's all the stuff you can get on YouTube. And then there's all the little videos that are posted on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram. And it's endless. So I think that there's, um, there's just too much information input into our brains, such that nothing really sticks. And I think that's a little bit of the problem, figuring out what the what might stick in the cultural zeitgeist right now is is a very tricky business. So that leads me to you just wrote a piece for the progressive about Jesus, look at you having uh, done your homework about (laughs) about how to avoid pre-election anxiety. Are you able to take your own advice in these last couple of weeks and, and avoid the things that that might dismiss your optimism? Yeah, I took off notifications on my phone maybe a month ago or something. So I don't, you know, so for example, when Kamala was named as VP, I didn't hear about it until a friend told me. Um, I'm just not getting those notifications and it's one of the best things I've done for my mental health. Uh, those notifications put you on a crazy emotional roller coaster. It, when you want to look at the phone because you're like, what time is it? And then suddenly you have to reckon with some piece of information. You know what I mean? That's going to either leave you ecstatic or in a slump or, or confused. You know what I mean? You just the human brain is not meant to take information that way all the time. And so I turned that off and that has really helped. I don't, I, you know, for someone who has a podcast that's about current events, I really don't consume it every day. You know, I don't consume it all day long. I have discrete periods of the day where I look at the news. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm intentional about it because I don't want my day to just be this barrage of shit coming at my face, making me feel good and horrible and everything in between. Um, I can't handle it. I can't take it. I don't think the average person can take it. Maybe I'm weak. I don't know. But but it's not even, it's just like, it's also, it's, it's ineffective. It's not a good use of time. It's inefficient. You know what I mean? So I think I, I, I hope that I've been following my own, um, my my own advice and um and i've been sort of moderating my consumption of news to discrete times i've been um trying to put that news in perspective like every i kind of feel like people were sort of y2king this election you know it's like in in during before um to the year 2000, I mean, people talked about Y2K, like there's a podcast out now about how we, you know, how we made Y2K out to be like, there, it was the end times Um, and nothing happened. So I think let's just not, you know, let's not make this a self-fulfilling prophecy, folks. Let's just, we've done elections before. This isn't the first one. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've done them before. We know how to do elections. We've done them. In fact, we do them basically every year somewhere in the country. So let's all calm down, take a beat, you know what I mean? And recognize that we know how to do this. So everyone calm down. Uh, Yeah. I I think every time I kind of go into a panic swirl, I I remind myself of that. Even though you did uh, write and direct and star in the movie Third Street Blackout, (laughs) which is about disconnecting or forcibly being disconnected (laughs) yeah god you know i think i think i was born too late like i 
would have been great if I had lived and then died before the internet, you know, like lived a long, happy life and died before the internet. Although like maybe I wouldn't have experienced as many like rights, but I mean, uh, you know, you take the good with the bad, John. Mm. Um, but I, but I am, I'm a little bit of a Luddite. Like I do, I, I just always love the idea of disconnecting. Like this conversation with you is going to be better than any social media interaction I have in the whole year. Right. Like the, it's it, a conversation with a human being is just always going to be just so much better. Well, this was a lot better. So thank you for keeping me. <laughs> off the internet for the last hour and uh hopefully enough people will tune into this through their devices i <laughs> know oh, god we both have podcasts that are like based on the internet wait can i ask you um a question before we end sure what is making you feel hopeful mm. about yeah right now in this in this moment and it could be anything small or large well, I've been looking a lot at this website, the Elect Pro- Project. Okay. It's tracking all of the early and mail-in votes. Sure, yeah. And so to see, last night before I went to bed, 44 million people had already voted. But a day before that, it was like 35 million. So to Jesus see so, Christ, yeah. So to see so many people voting two weeks away from Election Day, that gives me hope that the people are getting involved. Yeah. Now, whether all the votes get counted... <laughs> is is a question that my my brain who myself has an undergraduate degree in politics uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> starts to go oh no well there's so many things that can still go wrong but i think it's just i have to let go of that right? yeah you know like utah has been voting by mail since 2012 they've been they've been fine yeah. you know what i mean there hasn't been like large scale discounted votes. Well, same with Oregon. It's uh, it's fine. We're gonna be fine. We're gonna be fine. Yeah, Again. we're gonna we're be gonna fine. Be... We've been a re- we've been a republic for low these many years. We'll be fine. We'll be fine as long as we all agree that we're gonna be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it starts with me and you right now. Yeah, and then we tell two <laughs> friends, and they tell two friends. There it is. That's how it works. All right, so let's uh, stop talking to each other and start talking to our friends. Thanks so much, John, for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Same here. Bye. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.